Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brookmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, the Florida Main Street Program brings economic revitalization to historic downtowns throughout the state. Every community that has restored a historic building finds that it adds to the economic viability of the community as well. We'll hear letters written by the man who for 20 years was the only resident of what is now Indian River County. He says in the shanty were many trophies of his prowess, among others the skull and skin of a large manatee, also a huge rope net used in the capture of these curious animals. Archaeology in St. Augustine, the oldest permanent settlement in North America. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Long to hear that all aboard that's the time we leave at seven. Seven, I'll be waiting up for heaven. Heaven, counting every mile of railroad track that takes me back. I never thought, never thought my heart would be so yearning. Why did I? Why did I decide to roll? I gotta take, gotta take a sentimental journey. The Any Place, Anytime Quartet performs at the grand opening and dedication of the historic Derby Street Chapel in Coco. The chapel was built in 1924 and was scheduled for demolition in the mid-1990s. Instead, the chapel has been restored for use as a community center under the auspices of the Coco Main Street program. The Florida Main Street Association has helped revitalize historic downtowns throughout the state, from DeLand to Fort Pierce and Largo to Leesburg. Joan Jefferson is coordinator of the Florida Main Street Association. Florida Main Street was developed by the National Trust for Historic Preservation in the late 70s uh, as a measure to save historic buildings because uh, prior to that time we remember that there was an exodus of people from the downtowns both residents and businesses and as a result many historic buildings became what they called white elephants and uh, because they were no longer economically viable they were raised and the trust became very involved in that issue and developed a program called Main Street and Main Street was developed to redo revitalize the downtown area it has a four-point process, one beginning with organization, which is pretty much like any other organization that you might belong to, like the Chamber or Kiwanis or whatever it might be. The second is design, and that committee deals with everything that you see in a downtown area, whether it's the buildings, the streetscape, uh, paving, whatever you see in the downtown. They also address things like zoning and codes and things that are relevant to the development of the community. The third area is promotion. And promotion uh, is, well, there are really three parts of promotion. One is to bring people to the downtown to understand that changes are being made, to change if it has a bad image, to change it to a good image, uh, to make sure that the downtown is clean and safe 
and to change the uh, character of the community in that manner. The second is to deal with special events, um, two kinds of events. One would be the the kind of warm and fuzzy, if you will, event where people come downtown to recognize it's the heart of the community and simply to enjoy being together. The other part would be a special event, and this is a fundraiser, and this can make any um, any kind of action. For instance, in Stewart, they do what is called dancing in the streets. They do it in August. This has been, uh, until the last two years when they've been rained out, a very successful promotion. Every community does it in a different manner. The third element of promotion would be the retail, helping the downtown retailers to make that cash register ring. And they do that by helping them with uh, marketing the program, helping them with workshops to help the program, doing anything they can, helping them with um, sidewalk sales. Now, Main Street is a 501c3, so they cannot directly assist businesses. That assistance of businesses is through the Chamber of Commerce, not Main Street. But they can help in other ways to bring people to the downtown to support the, down, the businesses. Um, the next element, the last final element, would be the uh, economic restructuring. And of course, this is the most difficult uh, committee or element of Main Street because you're going to turn around from an unhealthy community to a uh, perhaps not very well-funded community into a thriving community. And this takes place in two ways. One would be to assist the existing businesses to, again, help them with workshops, perhaps safety issues. Um, marketing issues, business plan issues, anything that would help them uh, increase their sales. And then when the program becomes a little bit more sophisticated, they can uh, take on recruiting new businesses. And in order to do that, they have to know the buildings that are in the area, the businesses that are already existing, do surveys of why people are in the downtown, what they would support, not, not need, but what they would support if businesses were opened in the downtown area. And as they progress, they take all of this demographic information and all of the other knowledge that they've acquired and present that in a business packet, which is then sent out to other communities. The community has to understand what will be supported in the community, and then you go out and actively find those businesses. Sometimes you're going to steal it from another community, Sometimes you're going to talk them into opening a branch, but what you have to do is convince them that you're totally aware of the abilities in the community, what incentives are offered, what how the taxes are formed, how the regulations as far as health control, all the zoning and land use regulations. So you have to be pretty astute, and Main Streets are pretty astute at pulling all this together create a new community or enhance a community. The Florida Main Street Association held their recent annual meeting in the historic downtown area of Melbourne. Joan Jefferson identifies some highly successful Main Street programs around the state. Well, I think we're sitting in a very highly successful downtown uh, Main Street, um, remembering that not too long ago, Melbourne had a lot of vacancies. Um, and it took the city and Main Street and everybody else in the community pulling together to change. It, it is a, the reason that we're here is it, it's because of a very successful community that we wanted to share with our other communities. Of course, we can point to DeLand, which was an all-American city. Um, actually, I can point to all over the state, little communities like High Springs and Newberry, 
um, who have been completely revitalized um, and who really at this point are ready for the growth that's inevitable in those communities because they are part of Main Street and again I can't uh, say too often that Main Street really has to be a symbiotic relationship with the local government and when those two elements are in place then things happen they can't be divergent Main Street is not a community organization that supersedes or goes around anyone else. They simply become an umbrella that helps everybody else succeed. The Florida Main Street Association annual meeting was held in the old Melbourne High School building. After years of sitting empty and abandoned, the building was transformed into the Henniger Center for the Arts. Part of the Main Street effort is to encourage the creative reuse of historic buildings as an economic development tool. And I'm glad you brought that up because there's a great concern now uh, with the lack of funding for grants that many of our historic buildings are going to be destroyed in Florida. So it's more important now than ever to be aware of not only their historic uh, viability but their economic viability. Um, the restorations, were, again, we're sitting here in the um, high school that now has become a community center. Tomorrow I'm going to COCO to help to dedicate the Derby Street Chapel, which will become a community center. Um, all of the historic theaters in the state now are becoming economically viable, and I know that in Stewart and in Fort Pierce, those uh, restorations of the theaters have created activity that brought in restaurants and businesses, and uh, I can, really I can go on. Almost every community that has restored a historic building finds that it adds to the economic viability of the community as well. Grand opening and dedication of the historic Derby Street Chapel in Coco was standing room only, with an overflow crowd listening to the ceremony over speakers on the front lawn. Roz Foster is founder of the North Brevard Heritage Foundation and serves on the Brevard County Historical Commission. She helped the Derby Street Chapel Restoration Committee get started with their efforts. It was a pure pleasure to work with uh, the group that was interested in the restoration process. Uh, uh, they had no idea what journey they were going to embark on. Uh, they uh, asked me to meet me at the historic LaGrange Community Church because we were instrumental in restoring that, and we had pro uh, ongoing programs there, and they just wanted to get a feel for what it was like. So uh, they did come up, and, uh, and, and I discussed the pros and cons and all of the things that would happen when they started the process. Um, and uh, they decided to move forward. And uh, uh, so uh, they went for grants. Uh, I, uh, I was up there with uh, Ida and supported her in, uh, in getting uh, some grants. And, uh, and then what was so wonderful about it was the nucleus of dedicated uh, 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 
volunteers who actually did most of the restoration themselves. Uh, but the perseverance of uh, going through all of the ordinance uh, code enforcements, uh, getting the plans approved by state, uh, all of the mounds of paperwork that it takes to document the processes, uh, and of course in historic preservation, when you get into it, you find all kinds of obstacles uh, within the building structure itself that you have. Uh, uh, certain th elements that you have to deal with because you didn't know they were there or whatever. So uh, it's just a marvelous day of celebration for a long, uh, difficult, and uh, but perseverance pays off. And they have a wonderful structure uh, that they have restored uh, for generations to come and uh, to be used by the community uh, for various uh, events and weddings, funerals, uh, and cultural events. So it makes a great addition to historic downtown Coca Village. The Florida Main Street Association encourages visionary approaches to restoring historic downtowns, but the focus of the sessions at this year's annual meeting was mostly on practical advice. Coordinator Joan Jefferson. Well, each year there is a different kind of interest. This year seems to be interested in the social media and how, how to utilize the Internet, um, not only for business but for uh, socialization. Now I'm of an age that I like to pick up the phone and talk to somebody, but my grandchildren uh, are all thumbs because they're texting every moment. I think we have to keep in touch of where the world is progressing and take our communities in that direction, which is what we try to do. Today we have a session on farmers markets because as you know even the president is concerned about fresh food, our diet, uh, the way that we've become very obese in our, in our country. So those are the issues. I kind of um, wait through the year to find out what people are interested in. We do a survey at the end of the conference to find out what they would like to hear about next year. We have really, really wonderful speakers. A lot of them are national. Uh, I go to the national convention and frankly I steal the best presenters from their conference to bring them to Florida. So, uh, But I would say those are the two most interesting things. Obviously there's always interest in, in historic preservation issues. Um, the great concern as I mentioned because of our economy and the loss of buildings. Um, we have interested in all the design issues um, from banners to buildings. Uh, how to actually have a community that is not a celebration, not a Disney World, but a working community that's indigenous to where it's located. The successful results of the Main Street program can be seen in cities throughout the state. Towns interested in joining the Main Street program can apply to the selection committee. They choose up to three communities each year. When the communities are chosen, they can apply for a one-time $10,000 grant but what we give them is forty to fifty thousand dollars worth of technical assistance. We have uh, certified consultants that are certified by the National Main Street Center, and we provide up to eighteen different kinds of services. The communities that are chosen choose the service, choose the uh, consultant. We also have a three-day resource team visit in each community. We have one-on-one training. We have individual training. Um, and we're there for them, and we do the best we can for them. Joan Jefferson is coordinator of the Florida Main Street Association based at the Bureau of Historic Preservation in Tallahassee.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, learn about upcoming special events, and become a member of the Florida Historical Society. For 20 years in the mid-1800s, the population of what is now Indian River County was one. Janie Gould has more. Bet you've never heard of a character by the name of Captain Estes. A.W. Estes was the first resident of what is now Indian River County. He moved in in the 1850s and led a solitary existence for decades. In the 1870s, he captured two live manatees. He took them to the nation's centennial exposition in Philadelphia. Pam Cooper is the Florida History and Genealogy Librarian at the Indian River County Library. She's done her homework about Captain Estes. He was a hermit, as far as I can tell, but he came from South Carolina, born in 1815. He left his family in Georgia, and he did seem to have some contact with them, but he came down, you know, like in the 1850s. We can prove this by several documents, and one of them is a letter that we received from a descendant of his family. It's dated August 8, 1872, and I'll just read one little paragraph. It says, If it want for my afflictions, I would live on Indian River to be a hundred years old. It's the healthiest place in the world. There is nothing to cause sick. It is the mildest and best climate in the world here. He was an early booster of our area, I guess. Tell me where he lived. He lived uh, right around Conway Drive or Live Oak Drive on the Barrier Island. Now that's part of Vero Central Beach area, but Captain Estes didn't have neighbors anywhere until the Bethel Creek House of Refuge was built in the 1870s. Prior to that, he was pretty much alone, and on that island, people would come down the river, and they would probably see him, especially two doctors that we know stopped and said hello to him several times. One of those visitors, a man named Henschel, wrote a letter describing Captain Estes' home. He says, In the shanty were many trophies of his prowess, among others the skull and skin of a large manatee, also a huge rope net used in the capture of these curious animals. Captain Estes took two live manatees to Philadelphia during the Centennial Exposition, but which unfortunately were burned in the fire that occurred opposite the main entrance. You're reading from this letter. I have to ask, how in the world would he have been able to take two live manatees on this journey of two or three weeks? Your guess is as good as mine. I cannot imagine it, although I have found out that they did have manatees at the exposition, so somehow they managed to do it. So this man lived here then for decades and lived by himself. As you said, there was nobody else here until the House of Refuge was built. You've got other communications from him? Did he ever go home? Did people come visit him? Family? What did he do? He had some land to take care of. That probably took a lot of his time. He was pretty much invested in land. And one of the things in his letter that we have from 1872, it appears that he had not been home in 20 years. In fact, in the letter, he finally finds out that a lot of his family had died from yellow fever. He was pretty much alone for over 20 years, maybe 30 years. I'm pretty sure that he probably died in 1883 because his land was sold to William Kemper, who happened 
happened to Ben, keeper at the House of Refuge. I gather that there's no physical trace of his home or anything, and he's not buried in a local cemetery as far as we know. Absolutely. I have a feeling that he probably died on the island and maybe been months, maybe even years later before anybody found him, if they did at all. Pam Cooper runs the Florida History and Genealogy Department at the Indian River County Library in Vero Beach. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. St. Augustine was the first lasting European settlement in the New World. Some call it the Spanish Plymouth Rock, but St. Augustine predates the Pilgrim Settlement by 55 years. There has long been speculation about the exact location of the original colony. Bill Dudley has been covering the ongoing investigation for almost a decade. Less than a mile from the gates of the old city of St. Augustine, an archaeological dig is in progress in a large open field near the water in back of the Fountain of Youth Park, one of the city's tourist attractions. If we can get a wheelbarrow and label it Zone 3A, Level 2, we'll put this little bit... Working in a shallow rectangular pit, they're carefully scraping off a few inches of dirt at a time, then smoothing the surface to look for almost invisible stains in the earth, signs of an Indian village that existed here 500 years ago. Directing the operation is University of Florida archaeologist Kathleen Deegan. We've been looking for this site for years and years and has assumed that it was in the bay, eroded away, as so many other parts of the coast have, or built over. But because it's situated here at the Fountain of Youth Park, it's been in a tourist area uh, since the middle of the 19th century, which remarkably has been the thing that saved the site. Why is this village so important? Because experts now believe it's nothing less than the first permanent European settlement in North America established by Menendez in 1565. This was the site of the principal Tumuqua cacique of the region, whose name was Chief Siloy. Pedro Menendez and his uh, crew of about 800 Spaniards arrived here, and Siloy gave them, or was convinced to give the Spaniards, his council house, which is uh, normally a, a very, very large structure in the middle of these Indian villages. Menendez saw it as a great basis to make a fort, and then the Spaniards settled around that area. Deegan points to a dark circle in the exposed earth that indicates where there was once a support for a building that may have held a thousand people. It would have been a substantial pillar, maybe three feet in diameter, 
but it rotted away or burned or something happened to it and so what we're left with is the stain and the outline of that post in the ground. They first dug holes probably 12, 13 feet across and the large logs were laid into these holes on the side and then hoisted up and then the holes were filled in. We've now excavated four of them and they appear to describe some kind of very large rectangular structure at least 30 meters, about 100 feet on one side. But meanwhile, on a sunny spring day like today, an important part of an archaeologist's job is stopping to explain the work to curious passers-by. So that's all you're looking for is stain. Most seem to be surprised by the exacting and unromantic nature of the day-to-day work of excavation. Boy, this is tedious, isn't it? You gotta love your job. (laughs) A few hundred feet away, dirt taken from the pits is being spread out on a series of screens and sprayed with water to wash away the sand and soil. Deegan and one of her assistants sort through the tiny objects left behind on the topmost screen. We'd be sorting through separating the shell, the whole shell from the broken shell, and bone in uh, one area, charcoal in another, artifacts in another. What have you got there, Jay, in in the artifact? St. John's. Oh, the Timuco Indian pottery, Uh uh-huh. Anything European, you see? Is it a glazed olive jar? Oh, look at that, yeah. Piece of a, a small Spanish st- storage jar with lead, green lead glazing on it. Oh, it's storage jar. Probably it's very thin. Okay. We've been working here on and off since 1985, gradually uncovering pieces of the village. We have found a lot of Spanish-style structures, barrel wells uh, made of Spanish oak, trash pits, and, and lots of Spanish artifacts dating to the middle of the 16th century. Rosary beads, gunshot pellets, and We've gotten buttons and a signet ring and sand shaker tops for writing equipment. So really a good array of mid-16th century Spanish artifacts. So there's really no other possible identification for this area except that of the first settlement. Why is this work important to present-day Floridians? For scholars like Kathy Deegan, the conclusions drawn from these findings help us understand in detail the lives of the real people of history. The documents talk about the big events, but we really know nothing about what it was like to live here. How did they build their first houses? Did they live with the Indians? Did they get food and interact with the native Tumuqua people? Did they live like Spaniards? All those interesting details that really let us construct the texture of life on the Florida frontier in 1565. So archaeology provides that kind of information. We don't really provide the information about political events or large military campaigns, but we do speak to the people of those first settlements, and that's what we're trying to do bit by bit is uncover and reconstruct that experience. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Be sure to join us again next week. If you've missed any of our programs, you can listen to archived editions on our website at myfloridahistory.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.